Amen. Welcome, welcome. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, as already said, we're going to be in John 7. Uh, we are walking through the Gospel of John together. If you have not already uh, picked one up, there are these journals on the Gospel of John. I would encourage you to, we just printed uh, a couple hundred more, and so grab those. And uh, there should be a section in there on our text today, and you can take notes and kind of guide you through the remainder of the Gospel of John together. It's important as we kind of jump in, we are, we are walking through John's Gospel verse by verse. And so when we get into larger chapters of the Bible, like John chapter 7, it's important that we understand the context and kind of remember what's going on. It's easy to take things out of their context, and then uh, we kind of misconstrue the message that is actually being portrayed. And so it's important for us to remember. And then I want us to remember the, the larger context of the book, because I think the larger context of the book the Gospel of John, actually helps us understand why it is that we have this section of, of Scripture, John 7, 25-36, that we're looking at. And so in John chapter 20, verse 31, we see the purpose that the Gospel of John was written. It says in John 20, verse 31, that these things are written... So the, the gospel of John has been written to us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, what is it that these, these people in Jerusalem and these leaders are debating? They're debating, is this the Christ? And so we have an example, we have, we have people who, who are being portrayed here who are, have, have not necessarily come to a great understanding. We talked about last week that they, they've missed Jesus, and, and we don't want to miss Jesus. We want to make sure that we're, we want to know what Jesus is up to in the world. We want to know where Jesus is at work. We want to be in the presence of Jesus, and, and we get to do that. And, and so we don't want to miss Jesus, and so we learn. And, and what we see in this passage is, is we see a group of people who are continuing to miss Jesus, and they're continuing to not see Jesus for who he truly is. And so they've made some mistakes. And, and here's what I would say and kind of illustrate this. So we don't watch a ton of TV in our house, uh, but when we do, uh, we'll typically find ourselves on YouTube watching fail videos. Anybody love fail videos? And fail videos are great for a couple different purposes. One, it's always great to laugh at other people's mistakes, right? You can say that in church. It's okay. We laugh at other people's mistakes. They're funny. We also learn from other people's mistakes, right? We're going, I don't want to make that same mistake. I don't want to follow the same path that that person's made. Some of my favorite fail videos that we get to watch are gym fails, okay? And if you go into any gym in the world in January, you see people walking into the gym and they're going, I have no idea what this contraption's for, but I'm going to strap this strap on my head and do like head exercises, right? You've seen these. And we're going, don't make that same mistake, what we have here portrayed in John 7, 25 through 36 is a fail video of the people of Jerusalem, and it's given to us for our instruction so we don't make the same mistake, so that we don't fail in some of the same ways that they did. 
And so we see two groups of people illustrated in this, the people of Jerusalem and the leaders. And what I want to illustrate as we kind of begin is three ways in which they failed. Three ways in which they failed. And then we're going to look at some of the implications of that and go, have we failed? Are, are, are we failing in some of those same areas? And the first I would say is this, they were right, but not rational. They were right, but not rational. And, and kind of let me explain that. So we see in verse 25, it says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, they're, they're trying again, they're, they're seeking to understand who this guy is. They heard Jesus teaching in the temple and they're like, this guy is, is, is speaking, but where was he trained? Where was he educated? He speaks with such wisdom. He speaks with such clarity. He speaks with such authority, but we don't know, like, who was his rabbi? Who was his teacher? And so people are questioning his authority. And so they begin to question, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, verse 26, speaking openly and saying nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Okay. Do they know where this man comes from? Yes or no? Yes. They know where he comes from. So they're right. They're like, he came from Nazareth. We, we know this guy. We know his brothers. We know his family. We know, we know he's been like slinging a hammer with his father. Like he's a carpenter. You know, we've seen his work. We know where he comes from. We know this guy. They're right, but they're not rational. And what I mean by that is the idea of being rational is they didn't possess sound judgment, which I love because if we jump back up to verse 24, it says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so here is a group of people, they're right. They do know where Jesus comes from, but that is where they came, like their study, their examination of Jesus ended. And I love, as, as one of my uh, mentors says, to come to a conclusion means the point at which we stop thinking about something. That's what a conclusion is. The point at which you choose to stop thinking. And so like, hey, I've come to a conclusion on this matter. I've, I've come to a, which means that you are no longer thinking about that matter. And so you've become somewhat closed-minded about that issue. And so they're not examining Jesus. Now, they've come to this conclusion and this saying that, that they says no one will know where he comes from. And this was kind of an idea, although if they knew their Bibles and they were to go back to Old Testament prophecies, they said that the Messiah would actually be born in Bethlehem. And nobody actually decided to search into Jesus and actually use more logic and reason. They're just like, we know this guy, we know where he comes from. And, and I just see this idea of, of they're, they're, they're right, but they're not rational. And I'm just wondering, like, for us, what are the areas of life that we can be right in, but we're not rational? Like, we, 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 chose to, we, we choose to no longer think about a subject or a topic. I, this was pointed out to me this past week. Uh, somebody was asking us in our church, like, hey, would you, would you look into this? Like, there's a, there's a group of pastors, and they're kind of dialoguing about this issue and this theological issue, and, like, and, and they're, they're talking from different perspectives. Would you give your perspective on this? Like, what do you think about this? What do you think about what these pastors are saying? And they're, they're, they're basically arguing back and forth, and I go, they're both right. 
Well, that's not helpful. Right? But no, they're, they're actually, they're both right. They're both speaking from different viewpoints and they're seeing different facets. And here's what I would say. Could it be possible that we could, like everyone, the way you're looking at me right now and you're going, and you all have different perspectives of me. You're seeing the left side of me. You're seeing the right side of me, right? Somebody sitting behind. There's different perspectives. You're seeing different facets of Justin. And could it be that you're seeing different facets of Jesus and we're not seeing the whole, we're not seeing the picture. So we pin this on Jesus and we go, we know where he comes from, right? Yeah, he comes from Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. And they miss this search because they're not out to examine Jesus, they're really just out to execute Jesus. They, they, they have a certain criteria. They have a certain checklist. Jesus has to meet these points. And so rather than Jesus kind of setting the agenda and Jesus setting the picture of like, here's who I am, they have an idea of who Jesus is that Jesus is having to match up against. And they're going, nope, he doesn't meet that criteria, doesn't meet that criteria, doesn't meet that criteria. And because of that, they fail to see Jesus. Because they didn't search They weren't rational. They didn't use sound judgment. They made Jesus out to be who they wanted him to be. And they missed it. We also see this in in many times when we look at Jesus' characteristics. I've heard people say before, like you, you hear like Jesus with the woman at the well. And we see how Jesus comes to this woman and Uh, whatever her background, whatever her past, she was an outcast of society and Jesus comes to her and loves her and we're like, yeah, that's, that's my Jesus. Like the way Jesus comes. And then we see this side of Jesus where he comes and it says that Jesus is actually going to yell. It's like a war cry. It says he proclaims, you don't know God. He proclaims that and we're like, man, that's kind of harsh. That's not my Jesus. And we're seeing facets. What we have in John's gospel is John is constantly turning this diamond. And we're seeing all these different facets of Jesus. And it's easy for us to fixate on one facet of Jesus and describe, that's my Jesus. When in reality, you just created a false God. Because that one characteristic or one idea you have about Jesus doesn't fit the whole. And so you may say, this is what my Jesus, and I don't know what your criteria is that, that, that fits. And so you stack, this is what Jesus must do. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is the characteristics of Jesus. This is the Jesus that I portray in my mind. And we need to be a little more rational and more open-minded and allow the Bible to really describe to us who is Jesus. Because we can be right. Jesus was loving. Jesus was strong. Jesus was forceful. Jesus was kind. Jesus was compassionate. And and we see all these different, but they, they all make up different facets of who Jesus is. And we need the Bible to inform us rather than to come with our own expectations of who Jesus is. When they come, they miss him. They miss him. They miss him because they come with their own understanding of who he is and so at the end of the day like we see Jesus 
like we see many facets of Jesus even in this passage. Even in Jesus proclaiming, you don't know God, is meant to be an aspect of his love and compassion upon a people. And I'll show you that uh, when we close this morning. But what we see in this text is, it says, but we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And that's not true. We do know where he comes from. We do know his story. They failed to see it. And so what we have in this passage, if I can kind of give you, this is a warning passage. As I said, you know, there, there's some mistakes that were made. The first mistake being, you can be right and not rational. You can be right about some of the identities of who Jesus is. And that's why we have dialogue. And it seems like we live in a time and culture where dialogue can't happen anymore. Like you can't have questions. You can't, you can't come and consider. And, and we're no longer talking with one another. We're talking at one another. And all we are doing is pointing out different facets of who Jesus is. And I think it's important that we need to think deeply about the subject. And I'm just wondering, have we grown to a place where we're no longer curious about Jesus? That we have our, our beliefs, we've come to some conclusions, this is who Jesus is. And, and there's definitely some things about who Jesus is and about his nature and character that we're like, Jesus is God, absolutely. We should definitely put that down as like, that's absolute. But have we, have we lost that sense of curiosity and awe of, of seeking the deeper things of who Jesus is? Richard Foster, I love this quote. He quotes it in Celebration of Discipline. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. This is true for us. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. These people weren't deep. They weren't deep. They had the right answer. They weren't rational. There was no examination of Jesus. They had a motive. They were out to kill him. And they even said that. Isn't this the man we're seeking to kill? You come with these preconceived ideas of who Jesus is. And because of that, you fail to actually see who Jesus is. The second thing is this. They're religious, but not in relationship. So the first mistake is we can be right but not rational we fail to think deeply we fail to to have curiosity about Jesus the second thing is is we can perform rituals I think the, the word religious is is challenging in some ways because we're like I'm not religious but we're we're ritualistic we do certain things we perform certain things and we think by in doing those it proves that we have right relationship with God when in reality, we see one of the faults of the leaders is they do all the things that seem to be uh, religious. They seem and claim to know God. But here, Jesus is going to say, you don't know him. Now, this is an attack. John 7, 28 through 32. So Jesus proclaimed. Now, I said the word proclaimed right there in the literal Greek, it literally means to cry out in a loud voice. It is used in the same place throughout all of Scripture to talk about a war cry or the sound that you make when you give birth, okay? This is a passionate yell. Jesus isn't saying, you know me. You know where I come from. He's like, you know me. You know me. You know where I come from. 
I mean, he is passionately proclaiming this. But I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in his name, believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so we see here the, the Pharisees, all right? The Pharisees are the law keepers. And they, they hear a crowd muttering. I mean, things, if, to use language, like Jesus is trending. Jesus, they're, they're fearful that Jesus is going to become popular. And so they hear the crowd beginning to discuss, and they're going, we got to take this man. We got to take him. And you got to ask, and I, I want you to ask yourself a question. I'll answer it in a second. But like, why, what are they so threatened by? What is it that moves them to the point that, like, the whole reason, and it's, we're six months away, Jesus knows it's coming, we're six months away from the crucifixion of Jesus from this point right here. The Feast of Booths, the feast that we're, we're describing right here, is six months away from the crucifixion of Jesus. What is it that led to the crucifixion of Jesus? Why did they kill him? And so they, they sent the chief priest and the Pharisees. Now, if you know anything about these parties, uh, these parties didn't really like one another. The chief priests were like the elite, elite, elite status, and the Pharisees were kind of the laymen. And they both had some similarities to what they were fighting for, but they, they didn't necessarily like each other, but they both knew they didn't like Jesus. And so it's like the, the, the pulling together of this crowd and, and they're going, let's do this together. Let's, let's take Jesus together. And what I want you to see here is that his loud yelling, his proclamation is really his kindness because he's warning them. I'm just wondering, like, if, if there's things you believe and you hold to that aren't true, and I want you to consider this for yourself, if there are things that you believe and you hold to that legitimately aren't true, do you want to know? If, if there's things that you hold to that you've, you've based your whole life and salvation and, and, and strength and significance upon, and it's a faulty foundation, would you want to know? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I would want to know. And this is Jesus proclaiming. He's proclaiming, but I don't know that they want to know. He comes, they're, they're religious, but they're not in relationship. He says, you do not know God. You perform religious duties. You keep the law. You hold to all these things. You're a church attending, Bible reading, prayer. Per, like You do all the right things, but you miss the point of those things. The point of those things is relationship with Jesus. And so you can do all of that activity and not actually be in the presence of Jesus. I think often we can, we attempt to be just religious enough to think that we can appease God or tip the scales in our favor, but not so much in relationship that it actually transforms our lives. We do just enough to think 
will just make God happy when in reality, he doesn't want your duty. He doesn't want your behavior. He wants you. He, he wants, I mean, more than I want my kids to behave, I want to be in relationship with my kids. I want them to know that they're loved. I want them to know that, that they have a father who loves them and cares for them. He's not after our religious performance. And the truth of the matter is, is if we look in John 15 and we look at Galatians 5, we see that the fruit, the works, the things that come actually come from abiding and being in his presence rather than doing those things to earn his presence. And so in all of this idea, they're, they're seeking to perform these things these religious duties, and a way to not actually need God. And this is a group of people who have prided themselves on knowing God. But they won't come to know God because they never can accept their sinfulness. They think they're right. They think they're made right with God because of their lawfulness. They're blinded to their sin. And what we see in this text is God has divine control over this moment. And how do we know that? Because they said, let's go, let's arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. God is over that situation. God is in control. We see in Luke chapter 18 a description of what it means to be uh, religious but not in relationship. In Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14, it says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. This is the Pharisees and chief priests, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The question is, is do you perform religious duties for God? Or are you in relationship with God? Do you know God? Do you know him? Not perform for him. The last thing I would have you see Close, you can be close, but not connected. We can be right, but not rational. We can be religious and not in relationship. And we can be close to Jesus, but not really be connected to Jesus. What we see in this, in verse 33, it says, Jesus then said, what does he say here? I will be with you. I'm with you. He's present with them. He's present with them right there in that moment. He said, I'm gonna be here. I'm present and I'm going to be here a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he attend? And this is, this is the leaders mocking him. 
Does he intend to go amongst the dispersion? Does he mean, does he mean to, to go outside of you know, Jerusalem here? Is he going to actually take this message to the Gentiles? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will find me and where I am, you cannot come? And I just wonder with us, how is Jesus seeking to be with you? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating that, that Jesus, although they were blinded, Although they couldn't see Jesus, although they had misconstrued ideas about who Jesus is, Jesus was still seeking them. And Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here a little longer. And I think he's telling them, like, your, your need for me and, and the presence and being in my presence, it's urgent. Like, it's, it's not going to be here forever. And if you die in this current state or condition outside of my presence, outside of relationship with me, it has eternal consequences. Now, I read that, and that, that sounds the alarms. That there would be a, a place, that there would be a position, that there would be a time where Jesus says, he's with us, but there's coming a time where he no longer will be with us, and we can't go to him. And as other gospel writers say, they say a chasm has been fixed. That there is no way to cross over. That if we die in this state and condition apart from Jesus, it has eternal consequences. Where Jesus is going, we cannot come. Now, is Jesus playing a game of hide and seek? No, he's, he's present. He's with them. But he's saying, there's going to come a time that you will seek me. And I think that's interesting. Because I think there's a lot of people in the world that we go, they're never going to seek Jesus. Everyone will. Everyone will. There will come a time where every single person on the face of this earth will seek him. And he won't be found. You're going to seek him. But where he's going, you can't go. You can't be with me. I'm present with you right now and you're not even interested. And there will be a day where you are interested and I won't be here. So I read that and for me... I'm just going, man, is, is Jesus present right now and I'm not interested? Is Jesus longing and seeking to be with me? And I've kept him at arm's length. Is Jesus seeking to be a friend of mine? And yet, I want a more casual relationship. I don't want intimacy with him. And the reality is, is maybe you're here and you're going, well, I mean, how in the world do you have a relationship with Jesus? Well, in John chapter 15, it tells us that he's going to send a helper and the helper is going to be the Holy Spirit. And so what it means to really be in the presence of Jesus means to have an awareness of and a connection with the Holy Spirit here in this moment, to be with him. The way we are with Jesus is by the Holy Spirit. 
So can I tell you this, this morning that when you wake up on Monday morning, he's with you? When you're eating breakfast, he's with you? When you're driving to work, he's with you in the office. He is with you in your home. He is with you at the gym. He is with you in your sleep. He is with you, but he always won't be with you. You can be close and not be connected. You can be in proximity, but not be present. We know this, right? Like you've been in relationship. You've actually been in physical, like in the same physical location as someone, but not present with that person. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm with you. I'm, I'm in the same physical location as you, but we're, you're not present with me. You don't acknowledge me. You don't sense me. You're not interested in me. We're missing each other. And I think for us, this is where I think most commonly most of us fail. And I love as like Brother Lawrence who grew up in a monastery and uh, spent most of his life talking about the practice of the presence of God. Um, it is a practice. He's present, but do we acknowledge his presence? Brother Lawrence says this. I think this is an important quote. It says, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. Okay, so you go to work, you go into your closet and pray. These times are no different. And in the noise and clutter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, any moms experience that? He says, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. These moments are no different. Now, um, I don't know about you, but like I long for that type of connection, right? That in every aspect of our daily life, we experience the presence of God. That if we read that, he said, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not going to be with you forever, but like... He sent the gift of the Holy Spirit for those who are followers of Jesus in the room. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so he's with us and we get to experience his presence. Dallas Willard says this, The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus is practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In our early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. Anybody agree with that? As you try to focus your attention and be in the presence of God and you're going, man, I'm so distracted, right? And, and your mind is just going a thousand different places. What am I going to eat for lunch? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to go? What's happening? You know, and, and well, like, oh yeah, back to the, God's presence. He's with me. It's a struggle, it's a fight. But he says, but these are habits, not the law of gravity. So it can be broken. Habits can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. 
And I've, I've spent a lot of time with you guys, and I've, I've heard your stories, and you're going, man, I just want to experience the presence of God with me. What does it look like to seek him? And I think that's what's interesting. That's what we're going to get into next week. Because I'll, I'll share with you the invitation that Jesus gives. Because we, we read these and we say, hey, they, they failed. Like they're close. And we can be close to Jesus. Like we can be in proximity. We show up here on Sunday mornings. But we don't feel connected. And we long to be connected. And we can be religious but not in relationship. And we long to be in relationship with Jesus. And we can be right, but we're not rational. Like we're not thinking deeply about the things of Jesus and being curious to to know Jesus more. And ultimately, what's going to happen is is that Jesus is going to continue to give this instruction because, again, this is a warning. So we read over in John chapter 8. We're going to be there in a few weeks. He says, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, because they believe that if you were to take your life, then you would not, like, we're, they're like, we're going to heaven. Like, we're, we're going to the Father. And he's like, you're not going to the Father. If you die in your sin, You don't go to heaven. Heaven is not for everyone. You die in your sin. You spend eternity apart from him. He said, you are from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins. If what? For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And if we read at the end of John chapter 7, it says, what does he mean that we can't go? And he doesn't answer it. And we're like, Jesus, answer the question. You know, like, we need to teach Jesus a course on evangelism. Right? Like, if Jesus is at, if, if someone's like, hey, where are you going? If we want to go there, how do we get there? And Jesus is like, see you later. And he leaves them. And I think he leaves them in a posture of he wants them to think deeply about these things. And the scene then transitions, and that's where we're going to jump in next week. But Jesus doesn't end his pursuit of them. And I think that's what I love about the nature and character of Jesus. Jesus is strong. Jesus is preaching truth. But Jesus is doing it from a compassionate, loving heart that longs and desires for all to be with him. And all to be in his presence. So I think there's two implications for us this morning. And I I think the first implication is this. Is this me? Have I failed? Like we've seen the fail video of the leaders and the Jerusalem people. And we go, am I making the same mistakes? Am I falling in some of the same... Like, he wrote these things so that it would move us to belief. And belief is not a one-time action. So, you're like, yeah, I believe. Well, it says in this text that some believe too. But it's kind of the belief that Jesus said he doesn't entrust himself to him because they're believing him because of these signs, not really believing him because of who he is. And so it's the idea of going like, yeah, I believe, but belief is ongoing, that we're, we're constantly growing in our belief of Jesus 
It's not a one-time action. I believed when I was seven years old. Now we're good. No, it's an ongoing belief. It's a continual belief. And so we, we look at this and, and we go, he's written these things. We, we have John 7, 25 through 36, so that it would move us to greater belief in Jesus. So I think it points out areas of unbelief. Do I have, do I have this false sense of connection with Jesus that isn't real? Do I have this false sense of performing religious duty and activity for Jesus, but don't really have relationship with Jesus? And I think it's something that we got to ask, are we failing? Have I failed in these same ways? The second thing that I think it should move us to do is, do we recognize others who have failed in these ways? And I think the temptation is, is like, hey man, everybody for themselves, you know, like, I'm like, look, if you see a joker over there in the gym with like, a, a, you know, an arm strap around his head doing like neck exercises, go over there and be like, hey, bro, look, can I show you how to use this contraption? All right. Like, let me, let me instruct you. Like if someone is failing in certain ways and if we truly believe this message, and that's what I would say. If we truly believe that there is coming a day where Jesus is going and where he's going, some will not go. Would we want to do everything possible in our power and strength to go and help people see what it is that they need to understand, believe, do, acceptance of their sin, the humility that they must come before to see Jesus for who he truly is? I think if, if we look at this and we see the urgency and the, and the compassion of Jesus in this passage, would we be moved to a place of urgency and compassion? I just really think if we believed this passage, if we believe a chasm is fixed, then we would be the, the most gospel-sharing people, good news-sharing people on earth. Because where the Father is, is where Jesus is. And where they are, I want every single one of my neighbors, friends, co-workers to be there too. See, the good news in all of this passage is in John chapter 7, 37. It's the next verse. And I want you to kind of see where it's going because it says, you know, this is happening in the middle of the week. But it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What I love about this is no matter where you are, no matter how many times you've rejected Jesus, no matter how many times you've failed to see him, Jesus continues to put an invitation on the table. Come and drink. Come to him and drink. And the truth is, this isn't just for people coming to Jesus for the first time. Church, Church of the Valley, Church of the Valley family members, Jesus is inviting us to come to him and drink. For out of that flows rivers of living water. You're like, I'm dry. Come to him and drink. Come to him and drink. Come to him and drink. William Paul Sell, who was a pastor and seminary president, said, it is unlikely that we will deepen our relationship with God in a casual or haphazard manner. 
there will be a need for some intentional commitment and some reorganization in our own lives, but there is nothing that will enrich our lives more than a deeper and clearer perception of God's presence in the routine of daily living. If there's anything I can convince you of this morning, it's the fact that Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, is present. Not just here this morning at 10 a.m. on a Sunday at Church of the Valley, but when you leave here in your car on the way home, at home today, in the morning when you wake up, at work. And we have the gift every single day to not fail in the way that we see these brothers and sisters fail, but we have the gift to come to him and drink. The question I leave you with is, will you? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, as your text says in John 20, that we would be moved to a place of belief, and by believing, we would have life. Lord, I want every single person who hears my voice this morning to have life, to have life. Lord, I pray for my brother or sister in Christ in this room this morning who feels dry spiritually, just doesn't feel connected. And you're with us. And I pray that we wouldn't neglect the fact that you're with us this morning. So here in the even the next few moments as we get to receive and partake in communion, that we would see this as a, a tangible picture of your presence with us here even now. Lord, I'm thankful for Sundays. I'm thankful for reminders like this where we get to come together and be reminded of your presence with us. Uh, but we need those daily reminders. We need those reminders all throughout our week. And when we wake, when we rise, when we go to bed, when we go to work, wherever it is that we find ourselves this week, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the, the kitchen with clutter and noise, you're there. So Lord, could we live with a conscious awareness of your presence with us? Would we come and drink deeply from your well? pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.